Podcast talking all things Disney with your hosts El John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome yet again to yet another edition of Skull Rock Podcast. If this is your first time checking us out, welcome, welcome. Every week, Dave and I talk all things Disney and pop culture with never before heard stories, behind the scenes moments from some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, and much, much more. I'm one of your co-hosts, Al John Go, musician, lifelong Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars fan, pop culturist, and also Halloween movie junkie. You can also email me at aljohn, A-L-J-O-N, at skullrockpodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. How are you, Al, John? I'm good, my brother. I am good. <laughs> this is my favorite time of year. You know, we, we're just coming off the afterglow of the the Walt Disney World Magic Kingdom 50th anniversary. We had just an awesome run of shows. I mean, and to be honest, you know, for an entire year of us doing these shows, all of them have been pretty epic, I have to say. Just from a fan perspective, just listening back to the shows. So yeah, we're, uh, I'm just, I'm just happy and pleased as can be right now. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, you know, I, I can feel it in the air, you know, it, it's, it's starting to get cooler in the evenings. The leaves are starting to turn everywhere. And, uh, and I have to tell you, I just um, uh, posted an article on cartoonresearch.com. Oh, sweet. Tied, titled the long afterlife of the nightmare before Christmas. So it's a, it's another in a series of articles I've, I've posted uh, on the nightmare before Christmas. And I think we'll talk more about nightmare um, uh, for our Halloween show. That's awesome. That movie never gets old. It's so well-written and just wonderfully produced and executed on so many different levels. I mean, obviously a huge Tim Burton fan, Awesome big ups to Danny Elfman, uh, Elfman, of course, and the music. But that is just the gift that keeps on giving. Love that movie. It really is. It's a wonderful film. It's got a it's got a big heart. Hey, before we 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 talk into the news, and we have a special guest. You want to tease the guest real quick? Yes, we've got Imagineer Tom Morris with us. Yes, and not not just for one episode of Skull Rock Podcast, but for two. Swinks. So yeah, <laughs> that's right. For the next uh, the next two weeks, uh, we're going to be continuing our conversation with Imagineer Tom Morris, and uh, he's hanging out in the green room. So I can't wait to get to him. Uh, awesome. But we should probably get to the news. Well, yeah, absolutely. And oh, and you also have a do you have a listener comment too? Did you get some email this week? Oh my gosh. Thank you for reminding me. Yeah. I I got a wonderful, wonderful email 
from Ellen in Taiwan. What? We are we, we've got global reach global here at the Skull Rock Podcast. <laughs> we aim for that. Uh, but Ellen in Taiwan sent me this lovely note. She says, "I'm really excited to read the Claude Coates book. I've loved hearing you and Alan doing interviews leading up to the release." And I'm continuing to enjoy the great show you and Al John put together for Skull Rock. Nice. Hey, where's my applause? Oh, thank you, Ellen in Taiwan. So heartwarming. Hey, you know what? I too am looking forward to the book. And if you're interested in pick up the book too, we do have the book link in the show notes. So go out there and pick up that book and enjoy the holiday season just you know order one for yourself order you know be nice to uh, one of your big disney friends that loves that too you can just, just share the wealth share the love of the book that's what i'm saying absolutely yes skull rock podcast ripped from the headlines it's skull rock podcast headline news ripped from the headlines man you know a lot of people are bummed we're still living in the age of the post-pandemic world, and we have delays that are going to hit Marvel Studios, specifically Doctor Strange 2, Thor 4, and many more being pushed, pushed, pushed back. Uh, it looks like uh, earlier in the week, Marvel Studios announced a shakeup to its upcoming film releases and the schedule. So here we have, you know, it's really taking, uh, I guess, the entire thing slate is being moved across the board because you know every film just links to another that's the i guess that's a challenge of doing things the way marvel is currently doing it and that's doctor strange in the multiverse of madness thor love and thunder black panther wakanda forever the marvels quantumania with ant-man and the wasp so here you go dave you ready here's some changes we got Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness is moving from March to May 6th. Thor Love and Thunder. No! Yeah, no! Oh, I know. No. You know something? I, I, I think this is, as my mother would say, this is a big nothing. So yeah. they're, shifting, they're shifting these releases on the, on the uh, calendar. You know what? Cut them some slack. Uh, you know, we're at the tail end of almost, you know, uh, more than 18 months of a pandemic. And, uh, you know, the, they could slip things around. It's not like they're, they're moving it from uh, next year to two years out or something. They're slipping it what a month and a half they are and here's the 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 timing of this so once again we're moving past the 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 february season you know i think they they're looking at you know things trying to monitor how people are are going to be feeling after the holiday season but look the timing couldn't be better you have may 6th of 2022 which is typically the opening slot of the summer blockbuster season right dave yeah. So they're positioning it really well, moving it into mm-hmm. what was the Avengers date, right? That's the okay. historical Avengers date. So Doctor Strange moving to May, Thor Love and Thunder from May to July 8th, which is going to be huge. Black Panther's Wakanda Forever, that's going to be uh, July to the November uh, 11, which is that right in time for the uh, Christmas season, Holidays. holiday season. Yeah. Marvel's moved to from 11, 11 November into the May slot. And then Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania from uh, February to July 28th. Now, they're also... Uh, some brand new slots that they are uh, talking about as well. Uh, July 28th from um, 
oh, I guess they they removed these slots. Uh, July twenty eighth, twenty twenty three, October and eleven. Uh, I'm sorry, eleven November of uh, twenty twenty three as well. Uh, we can only speculate. Those are for you know maybe a Fantastic Four movie or something else like that. So we'll see. But you know, there I, you go. You know, look, I I, I think I think this is you know uh, the some of these things get splashed around, and when they announced this, the stock went down. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. I think. I think you too. Know? Yeah. Plus, uh, other I, studios are moving their their films too because they right. have to jostle things around, and studios only have a you know a finite. Uh, window right or, or dates yeah. they have throughout well, the year. Yeah, you know the the calendar. You know all the studios are looking at what everyone else is releasing. They they don't want to release their movie against a big Marvel superhero movie, possibly. You know, so they have to. You know they they have to you you know strategize as to where they're going to release their films. You know, and I think mm. Disney's doing the same thing. Look, moving moving uh, Black Black Panther two to November, you know, right before Thanksgiving, I, I think is going to be huge for that movie. Yeah. You know, I don't think it, they can do anything wrong. You know, the only thing they can do is catastrophically miss in terms of story. Right. Yeah. Because everything else. And, will and, be that, and that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. I mean, not it's, under, it's just not. No, not, nah, not with Kevin Feige uh-huh. at the helm. Hey, so uh, Disney, you sent this to Market Watch reports. Disney may have a structural problem in streaming. The analyst warned uh, downgraded. <laughs> analyst warns that the company you know, makes again, shit. And this is a big nothing. I mean, look, the, this is the ripple effect of uh, COVID, of the pandemic, of delays in, uh, you know, uh, creating new shows and things like that. Um, but, you know, what? when I read this story, what came to mind, Al John, was Disney has a massive, massive library of material. And they haven't put all of that material on Disney Plus. Mm-hmm. Now's the time to go in and start packaging some of those gems that are buried in, in in the library and bringing some of that stuff out, which is going to light up fandom, light up fandom. Yeah, you know. Yeah, one hundred percent. So do it, Disney. Do it and see the stock. Uh, revival. It's just great. Not that it's uh, bad uh, anyway. Yeah. No, but I mean, <laughs> look, there, there's so much material in the library that they haven't tapped into. And I think part of the problem is there's been a lot of turnover at the company. And I honestly feel like the people that are programming are focused on Marvel and Star Wars. Uh, 100%, you know, yeah. uh, but Disney plus is making waves because we have the Disney plus debut for the Beatles get back. Which uh, is I a can't docu- wait to see this, <laughs> right, Al John? I cannot wait to see this. Peter Jackson, yeah, Peter Jackson is a documentary. Uh, is directing this documentary, the docu series, never before seen, restored footage to premiere on Disney Plus November twenty fifth, twenty sixth, and twenty seventh of this year, right before the holiday season gets into effect. Like I guess it's the post turkey, uh, you know, post turkey hangover uh, watch of the century. Uh, I'm a huge Beatles fan, probably much. Like yourself, Dave. And yeah. If, and in fact, they're playing a lot of my guitars, which I'm super excited about. You know, of course, yeah, I, you I know, didn't have I, anything I, to do with that, you know, back in 1969, <laughs> but I can tell you that I'm helping run this company now. So I'm super <laughs> happy about it. 
Hey, listen, I got to tell you that, uh, you know, Peter Jackson did such a great job on the World War One yeah. um, uh, documentary, uh, they, they Shall Not Grow Old. And, you know, I was so excited when I first heard about this because he's coming in and taking 80 hours worth of uh, footage. And, and and making this documentary. I, I just honestly can't wait to see this because I think it's going to shed new light on the relationship of, uh, of these musicians uh, to one another and to the breakup of the Beatles. I agree. I agree. So the, the key art for this movie looks absolutely amazing. So if you're not familiar, here's a little bit of the boiler for you. Directed by three-time Oscar-winning filmmaker Peter Jackson, of course, Lord of the Rings, the Beatles Get Back Get Back takes an audience back in time to the band's January 1969 recording sessions, which became pivotal moment in history. And it features the creative process, them trying to write the songs uh, over the course of 60 hours of unseen footage, 21 days, just amazing, amazing vault stuff. If you're a Beatles fan, this is a must watch. And actually, once again, if you're just a fan of just music and pop culture, this is something you'll definitely want to catch there on Disney plus here for the holidays. So something else, which is going on is the last duel. Box office debacle. Hollywood's battle for older moviegoers is going on, according to the reports from Hollywood Reporter. Um, What do you think about what's going on with this? Uh, Because it looks like uh, only a little bit of the, the target audience showed up for this film. You know, I, I I'll tell you right now, they're they're sitting there spinning this uh, uh, because uh, the marketing was terrible for this movie. <laughs> it was kidding. terrible. I'm just calling it like it is. Uh, if you saw any of the trailers yep. and any of the marketing materials for this film, it was awful. OK, and you had an all star cast. You have Ridley Scott in the driver's seat and uh, they couldn't market this movie. You know, uh, and and that's really what's going on. You know, this baloney about it's a battle for the older audience and this and that. No. You know, look, a great movie is a great movie. Everybody's going to go see it. Yeah, 100%. And it's a fail on marketing. Um, I think it's a uh, actually it looks just really dark. And I don't think people um people are into that maybe they can they should have color corrected it before they put it out there i don't know <laughs> i don't know dave you're the filmmaker i mean you tell you, me you know, you know but what- look i mean it's always tough uh, al john when you're doing period pieces yeah you know period movies you know are going to resonate with certain certain segments of the audience and not with others and uh you know they tried everything they could by you know you got a great cast of, i mean look the cast is a killer cast yeah. Oh, it's an all-star cast. But, uh, you know, again, there was no compelling reason to go see this movie from a marketing standpoint. If you were if you were trying to appeal to people to go see this movie, I think they I think they did the the opposite. I think they they did a marketing campaign that repelled the audience. Well, it wasn't like the Dune release. I tell you that. No, <laughs> I exactly. mean, everybody's excited exactly. about Dune and yeah. this all-star movie just kind of get lost, as you said. And here is the rub team here's the rub 20th century studios right i mean were they just uh, you know i mean the 20th century studios that's disney dave 
I know. I, I mean, know. they were just hedging their bets. Maybe I don't know. They just were, they maybe they didn't even have faith in the movie, which sometimes happens. So I don't know. Yeah, you know, honestly, uh, I you know it could be any number of things, but I will tell you right now, there there was you know when I saw all of the marketing for this, <laughs> none of it grabbed me. None nope. of it was like, wow, I gotta go see. Yeah, that I movie. Get, yeah, there is not. Uh, yeah, there is nothing. There was nothing grabbing there, you know, so I liken it to this, you know, you see the James Bond trailer and you see the classic Dr. No font or whatever they used for that. And I'm like, dude, I got to see this. And this is, yeah. I got to see this. Or I see, you know, a free guy from, from Fox. And I'm like, oh, man, Ryan Reynolds. And this looks uplifting. Yeah. looks like a lot of fun. I've got to see this. And then I see this and I'm just super underwhelmed. But yeah, you know, whatever. I mean, that's it. So Batwoman, you know, the saga of Batwoman there on the WB continues to just unfurl. Ruby Rose says that they were fired from Batwoman. Uh, producer Warner Brothers TV said the studio opted not to renew Rose's option for a second season after complaints about workplace behavior. However, according to the Hollywood Reporter, lo and behold, she got injured. Yeah, I mean, you know, there there is a a, a deeper, darker story behind this mm. whole thing, and it doesn't sound very good. You know, it's it sounds to me like the studio is trying to spin uh, spin this, and uh, and and by the way, Ruby Rose was complicit in that spinning of the story because they, you know, when when she uh, departed, they they were both praising one another. Now the truth is coming out. Out. So, you know, this is, one, again, one of those things that unfortunately shouldn't be uh, playing out in the public. 100%. And it's a shame because Warner Brothers Television, I think, is a really, I mean, they put out some great, great stuff. And uh, I really like the DC uh, universe that they have on TV. It's a shame that this happened. And yeah. uh, I didn't have a problem with Ruby at all being Batwoman. I was like, okay, um, let's see where this goes. Let's see where it goes. Yeah. But um, it's a shame. But having said that, Dave, we're on the other end of the news segment for this week. Uh, we look forward to bringing you up to date with more news, of course, every week on the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Well, Al John, as promised, uh, we have a fantastic guest once again. Uh, we've got legendary Imagineer. Tom K. Morris, who's joining us, not for one segment, but for two segments. And this is the first part of our interview with Tom. Tom, welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. Thank you, Dave. It's great to be here. You see, our, our, our studio audience is going wild for you. You hear that? Wow. Yeah, that's <laughs> a first for me. <laughs> Well, Tom, it's so great to have you on uh, the show. Uh, and and I, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. But I, I want to start out like I always do. And Al John and I always like to, to get the backstory for our guests. We want to know uh, how, how did you get to Walt Disney Imagineering? You know, a lot of people start out in high school. They're kind of fascinated with Disneyland or, or you know, some aspect of Disney. And, and they, they start to sort of move in a direction that takes them on a path. How, right. What was your, what was your path? Well, um, it was, I guess, heading towards Disney at a young age, I would say around age nine when, well, there were two things um, and both happened around when I was maybe in second or third grade. 
was my dad got a job, a, a, a seasonal job at Disneyland. He was a high school teacher, an art teacher, um, art and English. And also he um, was in charge of the art direction for all of the um, high school uh, theatrical plays. And um, he thought it would be fun to get a seasonal job at Disneyland. This was 1967. And he happened to land on, he, he was basically on the opening crew of Pirates of the Caribbean a, a few weeks after it opened. So wow. I think starting in April or May of 1967, um, he's, you know, a ride operator there at Disneyland working on this pirate ride, which I knew nothing about. I liked Disneyland, but um, I was waiting for the haunted mansion because it was sitting out there since I can remember. <laughs> and I didn't know anything about, you know, this pirate ride. So my dad comes home, you know, one one day and says, I'm working at Disneyland. I'm working on this new pirate ride. I'm like, pirate ride. That's interesting. And it wouldn't be till August, I think of that summer that I um, went to Disneyland with him and he took me on the Pirates of the Caribbean. And so that was a seminal moment uh, because it just blew me, you know, it just totally blew me away. Um, it, it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just, um, the scene setups and, and the way that it was, um, you know, the, the presentation itself, it was like, where did we go? You know, there was something about the, the physical aspect of it that was like a magic trick, you know, um, how did they stuff all of that adventure into one little box? And so that intrigued me. So, so really you, you were, you were taken by the immersiveness of that yeah. attraction, right? And the magic of it. Uh, and, and a little bit of the, cause my dad, you know, being an art teacher and also being involved in the theatrical productions at the, at the high school, um, you know, let me in on a couple of the secrets. And I think his letting me on the secrets is really what intrigued me. Um, you know, he told me how the fire was made. He told me that um, certain kind of physical aspects as we're riding through it, it's like, okay, right now we're back underneath where we started. And I'm like, what, how could that be? And um, I think later he mentioned, you know, that the buildings were made out of cloth. I'm like, how could the buildings be made out of cloth? Um, and they were, <laughs> um, you know, with wooden frames. But so all of that was just super intriguing to me. So that was kind of the first time I um, thought it would be cool to design these things and was made aware of what was called wet enterprises at the time, the precursor to Imagineering. Sure. Um, but about the same time, I think it was the same summer, the Jungle Book came out and I loved the Jungle Book. And so um, almost coincidental with that, at a bookstore nearby called Pickwick Books, uh, I'm aging myself now probably, <laughs> precursor to Barnes and Noble and all of those, there was a, a chain of these big bookstores called Pickwick Books. And sitting on the shelf was a book called The Art of Animation by Bob Thomas. And so I was asking my dad, I think I'm like, you know, are there some books that I can learn about animation? And so we saw this book that said the art of animation and we quickly looked through it and it was full of beautiful, beautiful illustrations and what seemed like the recipe to making animated films. Uh, but it was $10 and that was a lot of money back then. And so it became, Oh, we'll get that 
uh, for Christmas for you. Wow. And then that didn't happen. Um, and years later it showed up, um, at Robinson's department store, there were three of them for $3 and 99 cents. And I stupidly told two of my other friends that that book was there on sale. So we all went, I, I guess I'm just too much of a nice guy. I should have hoarded them, but, uh, we <laughs> got a copy for $3 and 99 cents. So it was, a, it was a clearance. Yes, it was a clearance. Wow. And um, you know, that, yeah. that's really one of the early, uh, one of the earliest, uh, books on Disney animation, I think. On any animation. Yeah. yeah. Well, all the other you know, books are terrible. <laughs> yeah. You know, there was, there was the Walter Foster books that we always yeah. talk about on this show with, with various animation guests that we have on and stuff like that. But, but that was really the first attempt at sort of explaining the whole Disney animation process. Right. Right. Yeah. So I was interested not so much in being an animator, but I loved the background. So at that early age, you know, I, I knew my Claude Coates from my John Henches and Ivan Earls and all of that. And um, so at a, at a pretty young age, those names, you know, became embedded because every animated film, it seems like I would go to had the same names under the layout background color categories. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so those kind of got tattooed in my, in my brain early on. And, um, but you know, I also wanted to get into film. I also wanted to be an architect. So all of these things were swirling around and, um, and in high school I began taking drafting because the art class art at the time was just like, well, at least growing up in Orange County, not to diss Orange County or anything, but you were not really encouraged to go into art, at, um, at least at the school that I went to. It was like, you can be a, prof you know, grow up and become a successful professional or you can become an artist. It was kind of framed that way, just kind of not nice, but that's, you know, that's how yeah, it yeah. was. And so, and the art class was kind of filled with, you know, what we would call lodies. <laughs> you know, just kind of, you know, the kids who smoked pot. And oh, okay. Yeah. We, we used to call them the field rats. Yeah. Okay. I think, I think, I think everybody around the country has a name, <laughs> yeah. has names for, for the jocks and the, the yeah. this and the that, you know? So. Right. So, so. Yeah. Back you know, in, I back in the day, we just call that. them the band. I'm just <laughs> joking. The band, right? I'm just, okay. I'm just joking. I'm a rock and roller. So go figure. Right. Just joking. Right. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, you know, there were a few people in the art class that seemed interested and the art teacher was good, but it just wasn't a good environment to learn art. So I, I was taking drafting and I took three years of drafting and, you know, uh, it was kind of in preparation for becoming potentially an architect. Um, now in my senior year or by my senior year, I think I had already decided I did not want to be an architect after meeting some architects and, and kind of listening to, you know, they just weren't exciting and, it, yeah. and they didn't make their field <laughs> seem very exciting. This was before the times of, you know, Frank Gehry and, you know, the kind of the new wave of architecture. Sure. This was, you know, like, you know, hospitals and, you know, defense it, plants. And I, I, you know, I, I have to interject here because uh, Claude Coates, uh, uh, went to USC and was studying architecture before he, he switched to fine art. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder if that was what was going through his mind about it not being as exciting as he, he was hoping it would be. 
Well, a lot of the great Imagineers, as it turns out, went to um, architecture school, even the ones who became illustrators or more mm. art directors than architects, because back then you learned about the history of architecture. And it was almost like, you know, art history and architecture and classic um, design and sculpture. You had to take all of these classes to get your, at least in California, I guess, your architecture degree. Yeah. So that's why they would take trips to, you know, um, Europe and they would spend a year studying in Europe um, all of the classical, you know, forms of architecture. Uh, if it had been that, I would have signed up. <laughs> uh, and and the USC School of Architecture was one school that I was looking at um, going into, but we couldn't afford USC. So that was kind of out. Um, so, so I'm kind of like, you know, torn between this is, I, I'm going to say my junior year of high school. Like, so what am I going to do? I need to make up my mind soon because I have to decide what college I'm going to go to and you know what I'm going to do. And so, and I had not really developed my illustration skills, although I had started doing some illustrations in my junior year and um, using gouache as the format and, and studying um, Claude's paintings and Ivan Durrell's paintings and actually trying to do, you know, one in the style of Ivan Durrell, one in the style of Claude Coates, um, one in the style of Clem Hall. And that one caught Tony Baxter's eye. I guess they all did. So Tony gave me a tour. I think it was in my early part of my senior year uh, he gave me a tour of WED. I should mention prior to that in my junior year, um, once or twice, uh, I snuck into the Disney studio lot uh, with a um, another guy who worked at Disneyland. I was working at Disneyland as a young uh, balloon salesman. Uh, <laughs> And uh, because they hired, you know, young there, sure, sure. some of the some of the um, lessees and some of the parade people were hired at ages 14, 15, 16, et cetera. So I was working at I was working at Disneyland and uh, another guy who was also interested in animation was like, hey, let's just go to the Disney studio someday. So we went and we used our Disneyland IDs. They welcomed us in. Wow. <laughs> we started walking around. We went into the animation building. Um, we were looking at all the artwork on the walls that were on that first floor. That yeah, uh, the the main hallway. That yeah. main hallway. It, it had art and uh, Mr. Geographic. Yeah, you know? it, was, it was sort of examples uh, of the whole animation process. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I think we were probably looking at background art in there. And someone overheard us talking and joined the conversation. And that was an animator named Ed Gombert. Oh yeah, Ed Gompard, story <laughs> artist. Yeah. Yeah. And then another artist joined and the next thing we knew we were going down the the hallway uh into their wing and um we were met with uh we went into the office of Ron Clements, young. Yeah. Uh fair-haired Ron Clements who had just come in from the Midwest. He uh -huh. had been there for only a few months and he was I think they were work just either finishing up rescuers or starting up on Fox and the Hound. Uh-huh. And um <laughs> they were all kind of like they were, you know, it was a very kumbaya group of 
people that were really, you know, enthusiastic, but they were enthusiastic about getting started with the Black Cauldron and not with uh, whatever it was that was on their, you know, desk at the moment, which was, you know, probably Fox and the Hound. Fox and the Hound. Yeah, yeah. And um, they spent, well, a, a small group of them spent the afternoon with us as we kind of, you know, toured the animation building. And then we broke for lunch and I remember going to the commissary to get like a, a to-go lunch and they and there was a big barrel of beer. Do you remember they used to have like a just a big ice chest full of beer uh, bottles? You know something? I don't remember that. And and I started there in early 84. And and I'm sure they, they probably had it. I just was was probably oblivious to it, you know. Yeah, they may have stopped it by then, but um, but <laughs> they said, "You want to have a beer?" And it's like, "Well, no, <laughs> a little young for that." And then we had lunch on the Summer Magic porch on the back lot, I think, uh, if I recall. And well, we yeah, you know, the the back lot had uh, had sort of that Victorian uh, yeah, street, you know, the, the the residential street where they filmed the Million Dollar Duck and Pollyanna, yeah. the other yeah. exteriors, and they were all Victorian style single family homes on a street right. that wound around. And you, when you went around the bend, you went into uh, the uh, New England town where they they filmed Pete's Dragon, you know, and then you went into right. the Western town and then into the Zorro set so right. they they had a real nice back lot uh, yeah and i think they had just started digging the the reservoir for the uh or you know digging the harbor for the pete's dragon mm-hmm. um set yeah uh, at any rate you know we spent a day there and it was very thrilling and i had mixed emotions about going into animation uh after that um although you know it was still kind of up there. But then when Tony took me through wet, it was kind of like, okay, there's no, at this point, there's no, um, there's no decision to be made because, uh, wet was like, just, there were so many things for an ADD mind like mine, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like if you have ADD and which I, I'm pretty sure I had and still have, um, although I'm not officially diagnosed, but, uh, sitting at an animation desk all day. I don't know. It, it could either be the best thing or the worst thing. Yeah, no, I totally understand that. And, and it sounds to me like that Tony Baxter was the closer. Yeah, he, he was, was the closer. Was. He, he, he gave the closer. you the tour and, and, and that, that sealed the deal for you where you wanted to go. Right. And he introduced me to all of the, you know, greats that were there. And, um, and I, I think by that time, so this is when I think when Tony took me on the wed tour, that was early in my senior year. And I think I had made one more trip to the studio where they were um, groups of people who were interested in animation would meet Eric Larson. Yeah. And um, so I did that, but it just felt so sleepy there. And then you went over to wed Imagineering and it was like a toy shop and, you know, a, they're programming animatronics over here and this beautiful model shop over there and they're drawing sets over here and doing renderings over there. And you're like, well, all of these things are things I'm interested in doing. And um, so I thought, well, how am I going to go about this now? I've got to like start, I bet I need to brush up on my illustration um, skills. Cause really I, you know, wanted to be able to do the renderings like you saw in the annual reports. Yeah. <laughs> And um, 
And I thought, you know, if I could do that, I'm in because there's no one else. I mean, that's a very rare at the time um, kind of a skill to be able to imagine something and then to beautifully illustrate it. Yeah, yeah. So in college, I, um, I wasn't, you know, I couldn't afford going to a, a really good school. I had thought about CalArts, but um, I can't remember what reason. Um, that's basically because I hadn't taken any life drawing at the time. So um, I ended and, up at Cal- and, and Cal Arts was really, I mean, you would have gone there for the character animation program. Right. You know, because right. now, now they have more in the way of, uh, you know, uh, uh, immersive design and things sure. like that. And they're, they're, they're doing classes in, you know, show design and things like that at Cal Arts. But, but back in the, in the day when you were looking at, at it as a college, it was really the character animation program. Right. They they were focused on training the next generation of animators. Right. Yep, and I think that's one of the reasons why I bowed out of that. Um, so I landed at Cal State Fullerton near Disneyland, and not too far from where I lived in Orange County, and um, and I was a very good writer. So my kind of default, you know, skill was I was a good writer, uh, good with communication writing and and that sort of thing, and and. Cal State Fullerton was a communications school. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I could I could take um, illustration while I'm there because they had some decent illustration classes and they have a good film um, class, film program there. And they and who knows, maybe I'll get into marketing or advertising um, and and I can do that, you know, for Disney if I can't get into WED. And so I was kind of like, you know, um, um, spreading my <laughs> uh, kind of skills, I guess, around. Uh, you were hedging your bets. And that's exactly what I was doing. You were hedging your I bets. I was hedging, yeah. <laughs> and so now um, backing up one more year, going back to my senior year, Disney took over the balloon concession. I went into operations and they had just started a program there called the Disney Career Planning and Placement Program, something like that. You know, before you go into that, I just want people to understand that early in Disneyland's history, there you you mentioned the word concessions, but there were people who actually had a concession to sell something at the park, whether it be food or balloons in this case. And a portion of that revenue went to Disneyland, right? right? And, right. and it, but it was an independent person, and it was really sort of in the late '60s, early '70s when they were really starting to consolidate and take over everything. Right. So that there were no more people leasing a storefront on Main Street and right. selling goods and things like that, right? Right. That's right. And you know, because they were on five or ten-year contracts, and so. Um, unless they had done something to violate their contract, which was the case with a couple of them, from what I understand in my research, um, you know, they would be there till 1960 or 1965, 1970, whatever. And um, and this contract actually expired when the um, owner of it um, passed away. That was how I guess that contract was written. Wow. So he passed away in um, January of 1977. And Disney took over the concession at that time and merged it into outdoor vending, which I was in for a couple of months before I moved into attractions. 
And during this time, you know, Disney would do town halls where they would um, give the employees an update on what the company activities were. Right. And um, so Epcot was just, you know, coming into um, the conceptual phase, you know, coming into being. And same with Tokyo Disneyland and same with the, you know, the new animation program to bring in young artists at the studio and filmmakers. So um, they would kind of generate, you know, they generated a lot of excitement. Like here's a company that I'm working for that is interested in, grooming their employees to go on to bigger and better things. Right. And uh, I thought that was really, you know, kind of inspirational um, in in many respects, Uh, particularly Epcot, because what they were talking about was, you know, doing a project that could conceivably make the world a better place. So it had a nice kind of altruistic um, ring to it. And this is, you know, in the seventies, it, working for a company was like, Ooh, you know, you're, you're working for a company. <laughs> uh, and, and there, you know, what were, what were the choices that you were kind of guided into in high school? Well, you could be, you know, a doctor, a lawyer, or a business person, or an engineer was kind of the other thing. And if you're an engineer, that meant you were working for Rockwell or uh, you were the Fuller the Corporation. Aerospace or, or you yeah, know, uh, defense. Yeah, defense. Yeah. yeah. And none of that sounded interesting to me. <laughs> so here's, you know, a company that is saying that they've got, you know, jobs that will be coming up soon for, you know, Epcot, which is this great, you know, uh, project that will save humanity in, in kind of the way that they were pitching it. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was appealing to me. And, um, so shortly after that, they, um, unveiled this program called the career planning and placement program, where you could put in your resume and portfolio, um, if that was appropriate. And, um, and they would put, keep that on file until one of these jobs, you know, opened up and they were saying, you know, soon 77 or 78, you know, we're going to launch these projects and we're going to need all these people, not just artists, but it was everything, you know, it was project managers and schedulers and planners and yada, yada. And so I just, you know, for uh, kicks and giggles, I submitted a resume, if you could call it that. And whatever work, whatever artistic work I had done, I photographed and, you know, submitted as a portfolio and, just thought, okay, when I get out of school, then, you know, I'll have put this, you know, uh, portfolio in and, and maybe by putting it in so early, you know, it will give me some kind of, uh, (laughs) preference. Sure. Sure. Uh, You know, even though I kind of knew that's not how it worked, but what could it hurt anyway to, to put this in, to put my resume in. And it wasn't very long after that happened, I think it, I think I was in, yeah, I was in my, um, sophomore, just starting my sophomore year in college. And I got this call to go in to talk to this person from personnel, you know, what did I do wrong? And it was, um, they had, they had basically created two headhunters, <laughs> assigned two headhunters internally to go through all of these career planning and placement resumes and identify which people, you know, should go to the studio, which people should go to WED and work on which projects. And um, because I guess they had just announced 
both Tokyo Disneyland and Epcot are a go. Yeah. And um, so this is early, you know, late 1978. And, um, and I started early 79, but long story short, they wanted me. <laughs> and as a draftsman, it was my high school work that they were interested in. Not, wow. in, not as much of the illustrations that I had done, although um, a couple of those caught their eye. Um, but it was the drafting. They needed drafts people. Yeah. That, that's a, always a huge part of every Disney project is, is draftsmen, whether they're doing um, show set designing or architectural drafting or engineering drafting or drafting for graphics. Um, they need drafts people. So they offered me a job as an apprentice drafts person, and I didn't really know what to do. And I asked Tony Baxter for his advice and he said, well, I would go for it because when you're done graduating from um, college, they're going to be wrapping up these projects and there may not even be a wed in a right. anymore. <laughs> well, and, and, and rightfully so, because at, at the end of major, uh, uh, you know, openings, there were big layoffs, right? Uh, there was a big layoff after, uh, Walt Disney world opened. Oh yeah. And there was a big layoff after, uh, um, Tokyo Disneyland oh, yeah. got opened. Right. And after, after Disneyland opened. Yeah. And right. after Disneyland opened. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I thought, what the heck I'll do this, you know, for a year or maybe two, if it lasts that long, um, to get some, work experience. Plus I didn't, you know, I was in the process of wanting to transfer either to UCLA, uh, or to USC, um, to, for film and theater work. Yeah. And that would have given me the opportunity to do also do illustrations because still they didn't have back then they didn't have production design classes. That was not a thing. Yeah. It, it was sort of on the job training for those things. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So um, I was, you know, kind of in the process of getting that in the works when this when this offer happened. And I thought, what the heck, you know, the worst thing that can happen is I'll be away for two years and I'll come back. And by then I'll know what I want to do and I'll focus on that. And so I started at WED in January of 1979, along with a whole bunch of people. Um, and, and, you know, they were hiring up, they were ramping up all through 1979. And I started in the show set department, which was the um, area that um, laid out the attractions for the most part um, and did all the set design, any scenic design um, that had to be constructed as sets or, um, you know, sometimes as architecture uh, was done by that department. It was run by George Windrum, who I had interviewed with. And that's what I did. And, um, <laughs> and, you know, for the first couple of weeks, you do grunt work, right? Like, you, you know, um, labeling and titling presentation plans. Hey, you know like what? It's, it's like in animation, you start out as an in-betweener. Mm -hmm. you're, you're low person on the totem pole. And exactly. You're, you're going to do whatever the assistants and animators want, want you to do. That's right. That's yeah. right. So, um, and I, you know, I remember uh, running into these, into the greats in the hall, you know, uh, Claude Coates and uh, Exitensio, et cetera. 
Can you can you talk a little bit about uh, you, you and I actually spoke uh, a couple of years ago. We did an interview with you uh, in, in as part of the research for the Claude Coates book. I'm giving a shameless plug to the book. Um, and uh, can you just for our audience, could you just uh, talk a little bit about your first impressions of uh, Claude Coates? Well, yeah, I mean, I was in awe because I knew who he was going back to, you know, nine years old. Um, and I knew that he had painted, you know, at the time for, for many years, Lady and the Tramp was my favorite animated film just because of the um, handsomeness of the production. You know, it was just such a beautiful looking film. And, and I felt the same way about Sleeping Beauty. You know, both of those films, just from a production design standpoint, were um, amazing. And I knew that the man behind Sleeping Beauty was Ivan Durrell and the person most responsible for the look of Lady and the Tramp was Claude Coates. Yeah. And so any of these people would be like a God. And I was shy. You know, I was an introverted person. I still basically, you know, fundamentally am. Um, and I wouldn't I was know shy that. back then. You wouldn't know we, it. But, we wouldn't know it. But yeah. go ahead. <laughs> uh, I disguise it with obnoxiousness. So <laughs> back then I was, I was incredibly shy. So I would not go up and introduce myself. You know, I would let myself be introduced perhaps. Um, and so I was in awe of Claude and Tony had already introduced me and we would, you know, say hi in the hallways. And I do remember an impression, which was that an early impression, which me as a grunt for the first few weeks uh, would would bring me into the creative services room to to mat or to mount, usually to mount a presentation drawing. And um, and there were always a lot of people in there. There was the staff of creative services doing their job, but there'd also be you know, artists and designers in there usually, you know, sometimes in a hurry. So they couldn't wait for the staff to do it. So they would just do it themselves. And I would see Claude in there a lot. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't the type to, to say, Oh, that's beneath me to, you know, cut a illustration board or to mount, you know, uh, a drawing. So uh, that impressed me. That was an, an early impression of Claude, but so coincidentally, I guess, or maybe not. Um, the first real assignment I got to actually, you know, do something, I believe came from Claude. And that was to um, come up with some ideas for areas of the world of motion attraction that hadn't been um, addressed in the model, I guess. And they were getting ready to you know, it was all hands on deck on that show at the moment. And all the model builders were already on it. Um, building models of things, but they wanted someone um, with an architectural-ish background to come up with some um, uh, some structures that were needed in a couple of the scenes. So one of the scenes was the invention of the wheel scene, and they needed someone to design a pagoda and a Greek temple um, as background sets. And can I ask you yeah. a question on that? Yeah. When, when, you know, when the planning of an attraction like World of Motion is happening, uh, each step of the way there, there is those moments of, oh, well, what are we going to put here? 
Right. Or when you're building the model, you say, well, that looks a little empty over there, right? I mean, is that the, the sort of the process of it? it I it's think very that's what, iterative. It's very iterative. And, you know, the design can come from the model builder or it can come from a designer. It could come from, a you know, a, an illustrator or a show designer or a set designer. Um, but in the case of the world of motion, I think it mostly was... Claude's sketches and Mark Davis's sketches that would then be interpreted by the uh, model builders with Claude kind of overseeing the, the um, interpretation from sketch into three-dimensional form into the, into the space that had been created um, for the scene to exist in. Okay. So um, World of Motion was uh, probably a more complicated than usual example um, because you had architects early on that were kind of saying okay your show is going to go upstairs in this area and so um, so it's not all like conceived by the designers necessarily or by the by the show designers there's some architectural input uh, with the, with most of those large Epcot buildings um, where the architect would work out the space planning and then the show designer like Claude would then take that space and turn it into, you know, an attraction. So Claude would do the ride layout, for example, and then um, the leftover spaces were the individual scenes. And I'm pretty sure they at some point had a big layout in the room where they, you know, would take the storyboard ideas and say, okay, this will go there. This will go there. This will go there. And that's how they began planning it out. And then at some point, Mark Davis became involved to actually do the, um, a lot of the scenes, scene sketches. I think Claude did as well. I came in after all of that. So they were already 80% into the show and the model was being completed. And what they were doing, I think at the time was they were discovering, Oh, you know what? This scene isn't reading quite well or over here that we forgot you know to to actually design something for this corner we didn't know that the, that corner would be so obvious yeah um so um so that and that, corner, and that, yeah that, that kind of makes sense though yeah. i mean it, it seems like oh, totally. you know you can do a beautiful illustration but then when you take that and you blow it out into a three-dimensional model you that's where you actually start to see those uh, those right. empty spots and you know right. we need to put something there you know i learned that they were called holidays i didn't learn that till years later Oh, is that what they called them? Holidays? Holidays. According to some of the old wed Imagineers, Walt called them holidays. We have a holiday over here, which was, I guess, came from film, which means someone forgot to, you know, design a set for this area here. And someone's <laughs> got to run out real quick, <laughs> build a saloon or something to plug that, that hole. That, that just seems like a, a a really fun name for something. I think, you know, instead of saying, "Hey, we got a screw up over here," it's like, yeah. "Hey, we have a holiday over here." Someone has <laughs> a holiday, I guess, is what it means. And I think I first learned that from Rolly. Maybe it was in Rolly's book, Rolly Crump's <laughs> book. Nice. Um, but then I ran across it in a couple of other, you know, sources of like okay i had never heard it while i was working there i'm gonna start using uh, that yeah <laughs> there, were, there were some holidays and i was the holiday filler by default because uh probably because there was just no one else available you know the model builders were all 
finishing up that model. And um, everyone in my department was in the middle of finishing up or in the middle of whatever it was they were working on. And there were just two apprentices who started that, you know, in January. And there were a few more that would be hired in later. But for some reason, you know, um, someone requested that I work on the world of motion. So it might have been Claude. Um, you know, I'm not sure because the world of motion had about five people who claimed to be the art director on it. So, <laughs> um, Mark had finished off, um, before I started, Mark had finished his work on it. Um, Claude was certainly in the middle, but Ward Kimball was also being brought, just being brought in as, um, he would be the field art director for this. He would, he would, um, art direct the production and construction of the scenes and the installation and make sure that everything is authentic because it had a lot of cars and fire engines and, you know, stuff that, and trains, uh, things that Ward Kimball was an expert in. So, um, Ward was coming on as an art director of an aspect of it. And he might've been the one that called out the holidays. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but at any rate, I, I designed the Greek temple and I designed the Chinese uh, pagoda, which, you know, when I look back at it, they're, they're so banal. I, I don't even want to claim um, credit for that. <laughs> but the, the other scene was kind of neat. It was the hot air balloon scene. And Claude had done some research. I do remember Claude handing me um, some Xeroxes of hot air balloons that he had um, the library, you know, uh, make for him. So there, there were a bunch of these hot French hot air balloons. And the, the idea was that there's going to be a hot air balloon in the scene, but they didn't really know what the business was, so to speak. There was no, uh, I guess Mark had not done a, a sketch for this. I mean, it was a big holiday, I guess. It, it was a whole scene that no yeah. one Oh, you know, I remember what it was. It was originally all going to be projections. And so someone said, no, that's not good enough. It's got to be an actual scene. So it wasn't a holiday in that respect, but it was like a last minute change, uh, from, change. from doing projections to a dimensional set. Exactly. And when you say French balloons, you're talking about the, the old timey hot air balloons that had like the rope netting over the oh, yeah. top of the balloon, right? And that came ornate down. baskets. Yeah, the ornate baskets. Yeah. And um, yeah, so um, so I did some very rough pencil sketches that I kind of thought were good. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I was I, I was always the worst critic of my own work, but I thought, yeah, this this is kind of cool. And then, so the balloon is flying over these French village houses. And then, um, so the, the balloon would have been past those little, you know, windows and dormers. And then there's a church steeple up ahead and the church steeple has something pointy on the very top and the balloon is about to hit it. And there were goats in the basket along with the, you know, this, um, uh, hot air balloon pilot of some sort who was very maybe so full of himself that he didn't realize that the balloon was going to hit this sharp object, but the ghosts were aware of it. So the ghosts were like, man, you know, giving him warning <laughs> about it. And, um, and again, these were just really, you know, rough. Like I was so, um, 
shy about it that, you know, I didn't even use like a coarse pencil, you know, it's like, it's so light. Like it was just a little idea that a little wisp of an idea. And uh, so I showed it to Claude and he's like, you know, that that's interesting. That's imaginative, but it's, it's, you know, too um, involved, too subtle. I don't think people are going to get the whole thing with the goats and the steeple and all of that. So um, someone at that point, probably maybe they brought Mark Davis back in, designed that business of a guy and a pig <laughs> in the hot air balloon. And there's no steeple or anything. And the guy is just waving and the pig is having a good time. But the little buildings off on the left were the little buildings that I designed for that scene. So, so part, some, part of your it idea, made it in. Yeah, so I was going to say part of your idea made it in. Right. And I was like, you know, I was so busy, actually, that I never really went back and, you know, I never followed it along and and to see how they built it or how it was yeah. coming along. It wasn't for years that I kind of like went, oh, yeah, you know, that was like the first thing I designed that, you know, made it in. And, um, and I'm like, is that possible? Is it possible in my first two months, you know, that something I designed actually goes into the park? It was maybe a little too so unbelievable that I didn't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't wow. actually believe it until, you know, I saw it years later when it opened. Of, of course, you're, you're pinching yourself because you're there and you're working on this stuff and you can't believe you're doing it, right? Right, right. Well, it's like, how come no one like says good job or bad job? It was so, um, it was so nebulous, ambiguous. Like, are they doing it? Are they not? Did they like it? Did it was, they not? It was always, always very fluid. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, uh, but, but, you know, I, I, I don't want to, uh, jump too far ahead, uh, 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 because you did do some work on Disneyland too, right? We, we you yes. pulled well, over to Disneyland and to, to I, work. I on should it. mention I worked on uh, for the remainder of this Epcot era. Um, right after I worked, did that little you know uh, tour of duty on World of Motion, which wasn't very long. Um, I was scooped up to work on Journey into Imagination, which was a last minute addition to Epcot. Um, Kodak came in with a checkbook um, at the eleventh hour. And we had, but it had to open on opening day with everything else. And, and that's so, with, with Figment, right? That's with Figment and Dreamfinder. And um, Tony selected me to be on the, on the conceptual team along with uh, Rick Harper and Bob Rogers and Andy Gaskell. Oh yeah. Andy, he's uh, great. Andy, I think was probably the most um, influential in how that attraction came out. Uh, we had a model builder, John Stone, um, you know, who who built the model from Andy's um, renderings. And so John's ability to interpret those into actual spaces, um, you know, made all of those Andy Gaskell renderings very, very useful. And, and um, you know, we're, we're oftentimes an animator's uh, rendering or someone in the background department, you know, the rendering is nice, but how do you, how do you fit that in? Um, well, it, it all worked somehow. So, yeah. um, and Tad Stones also later became involved in that. Um, yeah. So it was and kind of and both, both Andy Gaskell and Tad Stones were in the animation department. That's right. So, yeah. so Wed was raiding the animation department at that time. Um, a, a year later we would get, um, 
Oh, I just, da- I, Dave Fighten went over there yes, to, do, right. uh, to program audio animatronics. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and people like Bill Boucher, you know, were yeah. on the Energy Pavilion. And um, Walt Paragoy was working with us on Journey into Imagination. Oh, so my I, gosh. Walt I, Paragoy. I wow. worked with Walt Paragoy on um, a number of the scenes in the attraction and lived to tell about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's, a, he, he's a tough guy. Yeah. And, and, and just for the audience, for our listeners uh, to understand, Walt Paragoy, really, his claim to fame at animation was he came up with that look for 101 Dalmatians. That's right. Yeah. Nice. And, uh, you know, so, you he know, with Don Sleeping Beauty, you know, he yeah. was considered one of the modernists at the studio. Yeah. Where he, with, put, he put down like blotches of color and then put the line, the Xerox line drawing of the background down on top of it. Right. Yeah. So, um, so he, you know, was working on the land pavilion and on um, brought over to work on Journey into Imagination. And, um, and I was working on some scenes that had clouds in them. And one day he walked by and looked at what I was doing and he's like, that's not how you do clouds. Let me show you how you do clouds. <laughs> and he, uh, I'm glad he did this. You know, he, he, instead of like keeping it to himself and telling someone else, I didn't know how to draw clouds. He said, here's how you draw clouds. And he, whips out this, you know, takes the um, tracing, roll of tracing paper and rips off a giant, you know, sheet of it. And with a charcoal pencil, you know, or probably just a piece of charcoal, he started drawing. You do it like this and the bottom is smoother and, and, uh, and never make all the circles the same size, which I kind of knew, but other, (laughs) other people didn't. (laughs) Uh, And so, um, I took it upon myself, except in one of the scenes, because I had learned from the master of clouds how to draw these very impressionistic um, Walt Paraguay-esque clouds. And so all the clouds in that attraction, whether projected or uh, sets, uh, uh, were designed by me, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I went to the school of Paraguay cloud drawing. I, I only met uh, Walt Paraguay, uh, I think once or twice uh, later in life, and uh, he was just a cantankerous guy. And I can't even tell you some <laughs> of the stories uh, surrounding that, what he was saying. No, I know, uh, but I will tell you that <laughs> I, I have a beautiful piece of artwork by him of a ballet dancer that mm-hmm. he did in pastels. I mean, he was just an amazing. Amazing yeah. artist. I have three or four of his pieces. Yeah. Um, I really, you know, we got along okay. And uh, I remember being on a flight to Orlando with him one time. You know, we were seat, you know, uh, neighbors in the plane. And that was an interesting experience. Uh, <laughs> again, I won't go into details. I, I don't think we <laughs> can tell some of those no, stories. No. It's unfortunate. But, this is yeah. a family show. <laughs> but if you ever mentioned uh, the name Ivan Earl to him, you would get a lot of cover. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> we'll have to do the uh, Skull Rock podcast after dark show. Exactly. And, you know, here they are, like two of the greatest uh artists at the Disney studio. You know, I have nothing bad to say about Ivan Durrell or Walt Paraguay in terms of their art. (laughs) Yeah, but but there definitely was a rivalry there. Yeah. 
Well, yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it like that? There, you know. Of course, you're in a very competitive environment too, and a lot of artists are. You know, and even the tenured, I guess you could say, the legendary artists there, you know, they still have their, you know, their ego and whatnot, you know, to yeah. to to kind of make themselves stand out and be different. So I get that. Yeah. Yeah. They all had, you know, kind of different levels of of that ego thing. And um, I find them all very fascinating. I've been listening to interviews or reading interviews uh, with many of these people, and it's you really get you really get inside their head. Yeah. And, uh, anyway, I digress. Um, so I worked on journey into imagination and that was a wonderful thing for three years and, uh, worked in the field on that. I was, uh, lived, I lived in Florida for one year at the wow. wilderness campground. Um, the ride portion of journey into imagination was delayed by, uh, two or three months, um, because of, the, it was a it was a new ride system, and all the engineers were busy um, making sure that the other ride systems were performing properly, especially Spaceship Earth. So um, it was decided to open the ride um, in, in the early part of 1983. So I was there all the way until we opened up the the ride. Wow, cool! And uh, yeah, it was it was a great experience. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the Anna, Dave Michener, Dave. Michener. Oh, Dave Michener. Yeah. Dave Michener was one of the directors on the great mouse detective. Right. Yeah. So before that he, um, and I guess after probably, um, uh, Fox and the hound, he was brought over, um, you know, after Andy Gaskell was brought over and Tad was brought over, then, uh, Michener was brought over to do all of the actual film animation, for figment because yeah. you know, he showed up in the, you know, as film animation in a couple of the scenes. Yeah. And, um, so it was kind of fun working with him. You know, he was, he was an incredibly nice guy. Yeah. Uh, really nice man. I, I had the opportunity uh, not only to, to meet him, but to work with him and talk with him quite frequently uh, at the beginning of the great mouse detective. Yeah. Uh, and uh, just, just a really nice, uh, nice man. And, and part of that, I would say sort of second generation, uh, uh, of uh, uh, animation professionals. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, it, you know, it was fun working with some of those people. Michael Lloyd was another person, um, but I don't think he was animation. He was, he was, um, he was an apprentice, if you will, to Peter Ellen Shaw. Oh, um, wow. But he was one of the matte painters, along with yeah. Bailey and then um, Harrison Ellen Shaw. There was Michael Lloyd, who had done many of the great matte paintings. We got we got to get Harrison on this show. I know. Yes, Harrison. I gotta I gotta track him down and get him on the show. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I I think that this is probably a good place for us to to break. Uh, and, uh, and just, uh, say that we're going to have you back next week, uh, to finish up, uh, our conversation because uh, we're just scratching the surface here because I, I want to, I want to get into, into your role at Disneyland and the stuff you did down at Disneyland and then back over to, uh, um, Walt Disney world. So, uh, if, if it's okay with you, we're, we're going to have you back next week. Okay. Sure. Absolutely. Let's do it. Your attention, please. <laughs> now loading on track number one. 
for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. Wow, we had a lot of fun on that one. <laughs> we, really, we really did. You know, Tom, Tom is such a great guy. And, and not only that, you know, he really knows his history. I mean, he is somebody, you know, look, I, I sent my, uh, my, uh, one of the, you know, my draft of the Claude Coates book, uh, to Tom to scrub over for me, you know, because he, you know, if, if there's a, you know, uh, uh an issue, uh, an incorrect fact or a date or something, he's going to find it for you. That's yeah. for sure. Well, absolutely. I mean, a lot of great, fascinating stories. And uh, hopefully we can talk a little bit about his book in the future. That would be amazing. Um, I, I think I, I think it's going to be unbelievable. I really do, Al John. I mean, the he, he it's really the archaeology of Imagineering. I mean, uh, it's 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 going to be something else. Absolutely fascinating. Fascinating stuff. And I tell you, just from a fan's perspective, as I do every week, I have to say this that uh, we got to dig these stories out because they're yeah. so enjoyable and provide just that extra bit of, of context. When you walk through the park and you look at the different things, as we mentioned about the trees and the different stuff in the park, just that extra added layer of fun and, and kind of that whole treasure hunt vibe that all of us Disney fans absolutely love when we walk through the park. So anyway, yeah. Dave, uh, once again, wonderful week, another wonderful week. And I guess we're going to be uh, shooting um, part two of this interview next week that's it i'm looking forward to it if you're a fan of disney and pop culture team please be sure to subscribe to our show thank you for listening thus far and uh, give us those likes on social as well facebook twitter instagram you can also hit us up on linkedin al john go dave bossert we're all there on linkedin and are ready to interact with you we want to entertain your questions and answer them uh, especially when it comes up to uh, our upcoming guests we'd love that we usually post those uh, upcoming guests there on our our team site there that you can join on facebook or uh, now on um uh, uh what is that discord we're on the discord dave you know about that we discord are. i i had no idea yeah we're on discord we're we're exploring all technology we even have I feel inter- so special yeah. i feel so special <laughs> we have interactive <laughs> polls and such as well there on anchor.fm as well but once again email us dave at skullrockpodcast.com or aljon at skullrockpodcast.com dave it's all you brother Thank you, man. Uh, Peace and love, as always, to our listeners. Uh, Go out. Have a great week. Uh, We appreciate you listening to us, and we will see you again here next week on the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Goh, co-host of the Disney List Podcast, as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast, here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney? They can contact me at themeparksandcruises at gmail.com. Skull Rock Podcast is made possible by listeners like you. We'd love to thank Charles, Lindsay, Spencer, and Joshua. 
To support this podcast to sustain future episodes, visit anchor.fm forward slash Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Kristen Hetzel, vacation planner, world traveler, Disney foodie, and theme park fan. I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host a Disney List podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook, The Disney List Podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com.